0: What's it been two weeks ago we had our spring break, and while on spring break, I was speaking out of town, and I I took a little side trip one day, didn't interfere with my commitments, and drove to see a couple, dear, dear, dear friends of mine. He happens to be on our board of what we call our Life on Life Ministries out of this church. Been a friend for years and years, delightful couple was only a, maybe a couple of years ago, maybe not that long. She found that she had a sarcoma on her cheek. This is a lady that is about as beautiful as any woman you're ever going to meet, physically and within, spiritually. Just a delightful woman, mid-50s. She finds out she has a sarcoma, and they tell her, you're going to have to... Uh, You're going to have to take that out. And to do so, we're going to have to remove your cheekbone and part of your mouth. The question, obviously, is this going to pretty much assure that I'm okay? And they had to give her the hard news that, no, this is such a rare sarcoma, we don't really know how to deal with it. And truthfully, it will probably take your life. She said, well, actually, I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm just going to meet my Jesus, and I don't want that surgery. They said, no, I don't think you understand, but the reason that we want to give you the surgery is to minimize the pain that you're going to experience. So she went through the 17-hour surgery and the weeks in the hospital and all the stuff that goes with it, taking out a big portion of her face. It was not many months later, they said, well, the sarcoma is still growing as we feared and assumed it would, Now we're going to have to take out your eye and your eye socket and remove the rest of this half of your face. She says, you don't understand. I'm okay with meeting my Savior. I'm all right. They said, no, you don't understand. You want to do it to minimize the pain that you're going to have to experience. And so as I drove to be with them, maybe for three or four hours, we talked about her very soon death. It could be in weeks now, could be months, maybe. She knows that it's nearing the end and she is in excruciating pain. We sat for four hours, and I could say with integrity as I left what a great, great time together. We talked about death, we talked about dying, we talked about heaven, we talked about her memorial service. Well, here I am talking to her and hearing her not use the words of the title of my message today, but, but she was saying the very same thing, everything is going to be all right. Everything is going to be all right. So I pull Bob aside and I say, Bob, now what's the real story? Tell me. How's she doing when she's just with you and in the late night and the, oh, she's in terrible pain. She hates the pain, but... Let me tell you, what you see is what you get. It's all the time. I have not seen one time in these two years where I've seen her in any way not exhibit a sense of confidence that she is okay and she's doing well. You know, it's real easy for me to say, here I am teaching on everything is going to be all right. My health is fine right now. My family is doing well. No major catastrophes of life at this point Oh, real easy to say. That's not her story. She can say, I've experienced the worst, and I can tell you everything is okay. That being said, the question that many of you would be asking, how can anybody go through that? How do they live through that kind of an experience and honestly say, I am okay, and everything is all right, How do they do that? This is death. This is pain. This is the worst of suffering. And I'll suggest to you it's because of two things she's holding on to. She believes with all of her heart. Number one, she believes that her God is in control. Number two, she believes that God orders all things for the well-being of his people, which includes her. I'm telling you, those two will take you further in life than you can imagine. I believe it with all my heart. I know it's true in life. We know it's true in so many arenas that if, then. You can take something as menial as sports and say, okay, if it is true. If you are playing golf and you want to hit the ball straight, I don't care how you take it back. There are a lot of variables. But the truth of it is, that club face has got to be square when you hit that ball or you've got bad results. If you're playing tennis, you've got to come up over the side of that ball, and you've got to be accelerating when you do it. If you're going to get that top spin to be able to dip it down into the court, you're going to hit it out. You're going to have bad results. And folks, it is so true. It's the same if-then. If it is true that God is in control and that he orders all things, even the stuff of the pain and suffering that we experience, so that it works together for good, for those who love him as we read in Romans 8:28 then a person can say everything is okay now i realize that that's not going to be an easy place to get to god has given to us an aid to enable that it's called the book of revelation it grieves me So many true Christians that love the Lord say, I don't ever read the book of Revelation. I know nothing about it. When I try, it just, uh, you know, and I understand why, because it is rather mysterious as you read it, but in a sense, it's not. And this was the book that he gave for his people of all time to say, you're going to live in a broken, painful, hard world. You got to know everything's going to be all right. Here's Revelation. This will be what you need. And especially chapters four and five. If you've been with us in the past week, I think you would know. If you were last week, why I would be saying that. What we're going to do is we're going to take a glimpse into what we're going to call the throne room of God in the heavenlies. This week we're going to we're going to take a post Easter glimpse. Last week, we took a pre-Easter glimpse, and I'm going to bring you in. If you weren't here, don't they? Oh, I missed it. No, I'll bring you in very, very quickly, and so we can pick right up. But it's a throne room. Maybe to give you an analogy to help you, last week, I mentioned that which is called a war room that the United States government has. It happens to be in Tampa, Florida. During the Iraq conflict, we had a member of this church, I alluded to him last week, who was there stationed in Tampa, his job to be alongside Tommy Franks, the commander of our forces at that time. I happened to see him as I left one of the services last week. I said, did I get it right? He said, you did. I said, tell me more. He said, Randy, it's really amazing. We're talking about a throne room in heaven, and there's a, there's a throne, and the king is on it, who is God. He says, it's interesting. You talk about how all of the the subjects of, of creation are all around the king. He said, there is a lifted chair. That's where the commander sits. Whatever he says goes. And there are all these people around. They have stations, all 360 degrees around them. And on the walls, you will not believe. I mean, there is sophisticated equipment you can't imagine. We can see every vessel. We can see on the high seas anywhere we want. We can go on land. We can see any of our troops. We know where our people are individually. We, can, we map out. We've got the whole war in front of us. We see the whole thing. I said, you remember when you called me from that room one day? Can I tell the story without getting you in trouble? He said, yeah, go ahead. I get a phone call one day. He said, Randy, are you anywhere where there's a, a television available? I said, Yeah. He said, You got to turn the television on right now. Watch them break in. You're going to see something very interesting. What's that? Well, I'm not supposed to be doing this, obviously, but you're going to see a girl named Jessica Lynch. Remember that name? Some of you do. Who's been kidnapped and assumed to be going to be put to death. We're about to rescue her, and you're going to see. What we're seeing on television And sure enough Boom! Just like that They take her and rescue her Can you imagine the difference In the perspective Of those that are sitting in that command room Knowing everything that's going to happen Versus one of Jessica's friends Maybe her parents Who are not in the know Certainly Jessica herself Who's thinking I may be put to death any minute Not so they knew what was going to happen in our military leadership. They're going to come in and rescue her like they did. That's the perspective God wants us to have. But you've got to go to the throne room to understand that. And God invites his apostle John, his beloved, to come into that throne room and to take a peek so that we might see what he saw. So with that, I'm going to invite you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 4, verse 1. It's the only verse that I'm going to read out of chapter 4. We'll pick up in chapter 5, and you have that on the back of your outline as well. I'll tell you the rest of the story to bring you up to date to where we are in chapter 5. It reads like this, chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Last week we described what and why. That's Jesus speaking and why we know it is. I won't go back into that. But Jesus speaks to John, his beloved, in a vision of sorts. And he says, take a peek. And so you can picture him walking around the corner and there's a door open. And he looks in and he goes, oh, it's God himself. Now, God is a spirit. doesn't have a body. So he's going to describe what he sees through a picture that God has given to him, and a picture saying more than a thousand words. It gives us an understanding of God that he sees and all that are around him. So what's going to happen is, in the next couple of verses, John sees God sitting on the throne, and this is how he describes him. He describes him as a like jasper. Jasper would be that which is pure. He describes him like sardius, which is blood red. It would be It would be representing the wrath of God, that true part of his character that's very real. Then as a rainbow, and you think of rainbow, you think of mercy. And he's on the throne. What does a throne mean? A throne means he's in charge, he's in control. When you're on the throne, that means you've got kingship. And when you have kingship, you have power and you have authority. We call that Sovereignty. We have a God who is sovereign, but not just sovereign, and not just one like John could say, oh, oh, look, he's a holy and and he's a wrathful God, and he's not going to say, oh, he's just just a, a friendly, kind, sweet God up in heaven. He's my friend in heaven. He's merciful. No, it's all together, and he sees God, but he doesn't stop there. John sees something else. Secondly, he sees the court before the throne. Now, the court's going to be made up of several different groups. First, 24 elders. It will tell us there were 24 elders. You think of the 12 patriarchs of the old, the lawgivers of the old. We think of the 12 apostles of the new. We talk about the law of Christ. These are the authorities of God's people through history. And he sees that leadership, 24 thrones around the throne of God. Then he says he sees a sea of glass like crystal crystal is that which is pure. C is used throughout many places in Scripture and particularly in Revelation to talk about masses of people. These are the pure masses of people, meaning the Christian populace at large. He's describing all of creation because then he comes to four living creatures. And the four living creatures, one is the face of a a lion, uh, one the face of a a calf, the other a face of man, the other um, or likened to a a calf, and so forth, and then the face of a man, and then uh, like an eagle. And four represents the number of of physical creation. And so these these are the angels of high, and they represent all creation. And so it describes them in such a way to say, Look, all of creation is before our God. Then it says, they have full of eyes. They have eyes to see in front and behind, meaning they see everything. I mean, they know everything that's going on on this earth. And so, what follows? We shouldn't be surprised. Worship begins. John sees the worship of the Creator in verses 8 through 11. And it describes, it gets us down to verse 11 and it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. This is the Father, creator. You created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Well, I finished this study last week, midweek or so, and I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to see a picture? I wonder, I'm picturing in my mind what it looks like. And we have a professional artist in our church who's just outstanding. And uh, uh, Steve Stanley and I said, uh, "Let's let's find a let's get us a picture of this." And so he was kind enough to draw us a picture. And if I remember, hope I will at the end of the service, I'll bring back this as a as a reminder. But I want you to just look at this picture, and that just shows the the story, the the sea of glass around, representing the masses of people, and so forth and so on. It's a great picture there. You might want to remember that picture, maybe Tuesday afternoon or Thursday morning. Who knows? We'll come back to that. But then we see John seeing what all but a few of us see. And when I say a few of us, maybe not of us right here. I hope not. But what all of this world but a few within it see, they see. I hope you don't see what John sees. Remember, this is a pre-Easter glimpse into the throne room. Here's how it reads in verse 1 of chapter 5. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Do you know what this book or this scroll is? It's what we would call the plan of God. There's a word for that called decrees. It's God decreeing whatsoever comes to pass. It's Ephesians 1, verse 11, when it talks about His purpose. Who does all things... According to his will, all things. He's in control. Well, the problem is though that it's being held in the in the hand of the Father, but everyone realizes there's no one worthy to open it. Wait, the Father is not worthy to nope, not by the role of the person of the Father. He's not. He's powerful enough. But there's something else going on here. Someone has to be worthy to open up the scrolls, which means once the scroll is open, his plan is being executed to the well-being of all of his people through history. This is why all things work together for good to those who love him. This is the plan that God has, and John sees it and says, and it's not opened No wonder it looks like the church is going to be annihilated. Maybe there is no gain in all of our suffering. And maybe this martyrdom that we're facing, maybe it's not. What is this all about? And he weeps because he's now like the world today. When their false hopes begin to evaporate, they're left saying, what is there in life? It's just pain and struggle and death. It means that there is not going to be, there's not going to be protection during times of trial. There's not going to be any salvation from our sin. There's not going to be any future inheritance. And he just begins to weep. And you know, that's the story of most of this world today when things go wrong in their life. Now, don't hear me wrong when I talk about weeping. I tell you what, if I find that my wife has that cancer, I lose my child, oh, I'm going to be weeping. And with no apologies, I met with somebody this week who lost their child just the week before. And I said, you know what, you ought to feel no shame for breaking down and crying and hurting. Let me tell you, this is a broken, painful world, and grieving is real, and it's good. But what I'm talking about here, it's what my friend Dee has. It's, yes, I hurt, and it's painful, and I hate it, but I'm okay. That's what breaking the seal means, that we can say it hurts, but I am okay. He just weeps. By the way, I believe that far too many Christians, things don't go right. What do we do? "Eh, This is going to be horrible. Nothing's good than this, and this is the worst thing that ever happened, and this is not going to be good, and this is not going to be good. And I go, oh, you're like John. It's like Easter never happened. Do you not know about Easter? So now we come to the post-Easter glimpse. Look what happens. First, John sees what's apparent to only a few in this world. Verse 5 of chapter 5, it says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the Lamb that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. No question, this is Jesus. He is depicted in the Old Testament Out of Judah, son of Jesse, on and on, the lion. What's the lion? The lion is the strength. Oh, he has the power. He's God, even as the father. But it's not enough. That is not enough. Many of us think, I got a great God. He's big. He can do anything. But you got to know the whole story. So look what happens in verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the 24 living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, meaning it had been slain, but now it's as if it hadn't been slain. Having seven horns, seven the number of God, horns referring to strength, and the seven eyes, eyes referring to knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God. There's the work of the Holy Spirit, as it says, sent out into all the earth. How amazing! He says, oh, look at the lion. But then he looks and says, oh, there it is again, but now a lamb. It's the same person Jesus. He's in his strength, but he's also coming with an ability because of something he's done. Look at verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Do you know what this is? This is coronation day for Jesus. That's what Easter is. Have you wondered, have you looked around how full this place is? We had a service this morning at 7.30 that I preached. And we were full in the, in the chapel. Now, if we do that again next week, I'd say there are 13 people there. <laughs> well, maybe Seven but there are not going to be many people there. No, no, it's Easter. What is the deal about Easter? Is it because, oh, it's a holiday, and oh, this is, if you don't get in one religious shot, you do it this week, and therefore let's... No, no, no. It's because this is his coronation day. The minute he rises from the dead, he is crowned king of kings and lord of lords. Why? Because he is worthy. Why? Because he went to the cross. Why? To pay for the sins of his future family. That's why we celebrate. Any king, when he's coronated, that's the big party festival. Yes, let's celebrate. That's why we do this. Easter. But look what happens. The last point of your outline says John sees the worship of Christ the Redeemer. We've already seen the worship of Father the Creator, but now the worship is going to be directed toward Jesus, the Redeemer. It begins, and it literally just walks down the chain. Watch what happens. The four creatures and the 24 elders, to begin with, in, chapter, in verses 8 through 10, it says, "...when He had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp," that represents music and singing, "...and golden bowls full of incense." That's the prayers of the saints. And by the way, if you want a great barometer of where you are spiritually, look at your prayer life and look at your worship, even singing. Great barometers of where people Well, my story, for years I became a Christian. I'd sit in church. I wouldn't sing a word. because I'm a man. <laughs> you don't sing if you're a man. And then I found out you can't stop. You have to sing when you're a spiritual man prayer and worship look at that verse 9 and they sang a new song new because this song couldn't be sung before because redemption had not been paid for saying worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain that's the crucifixion and purchased for God with your blood men from every tongue, tribe, and tongue, and people, and nation. And then it says, and you have, been met, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. I hope you're not waiting for some thousand years to come in the future where Jesus will finally reign. Oh no, he's reigning now. And guess what? We're reigning with him now. I have had the opportunity on many occasions to be with people that, I mean, outrun me in every direction of life. From, from anything, from some of them famous, to wealth, to power, to all kinds of things. And many of these very much not in God's kingdom. And I could look at them and compare myself and go, wow, who am I? But I'll tell you, what a difference when you can think, oh, but I am reigning with Christ the King. You're talking about helping your self-esteem and, to, by the way, realizing it has nothing to do with what I've done or you or any of us. It's the work of Jesus alone. But there's some of us who self-esteem, well I didn't make the team and I'm not handsome and I'm not beautiful and I don't have the grades and I can't get in this college and I can't do that and who am I? Look at everybody, look at... Let me tell you, all that's done away with when you can believe you're reigning with Christ even now. And get much better than that. Then it's the multitude of angels in verses 11 and 12. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads, means ten thousands of ten thousands, and thousands of thousands, meaning a specific number, yes, but so large you and I aren't going to count them. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then it all ends as the whole of creation now together in one chorus. And every created thing, verse 13, which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And it wraps it up in verse 14, and the four living creatures, which represents all physical creation, kept saying amen, and the elders, represent spiritual creation, fell down and worshiped. End of teaching. But you can't stop there. You got to know this. These chapters strategically placed prior to chapter 6. You know what happens in chapter 6? You could guess it almost. Jesus begins to take first seal, second, all the way through seven, and he breaks it open and he executes his plan on this earth. Do you know what the seals are unleashing? Trial and tribulation To unbeliever and believer alike, with this exception, that now because of his purchase of people from every nation, those that have been purchased, all of those trials, all of that heartache, all of the brokenness, all of the pain is designed for the well-being of his people. So you know what the first of the seals is? The first one is war. Oh, but God doesn't like war. God hates war. God wouldn't want anything to do war. It's not part of his plan. Oh, yes, it is. It's right here. You know what comes second? Persecution. Oh, but these are the greats of God's people, and they're standing up, and why should they be battered and beaten, and some of them put to death, and some brutally. Where was God when all that happened? Oh, it was part of his plan, actually. What? The third is economic hardship. Anybody relate to that these days? Of course we do. Uh, you mean God's hand? I can see him that this, isn't just that his plan got out of hand or someone else took over the plan or the bad devil or something. He didn't. No, no, no. It's part of his plan. What? You know what the fourth is? I'll stop with this one, and it's death and all the disease that takes you there. All the calamities. Wait, wait. God, I thought... Isn't it just amazing how many people say these things shouldn't happen, not to him, not to her, not to me. It shouldn't happen. And I say, are you kidding me? We're sinful people. Isn't the whole story of mankind, if you sin, you will die, and that means all the pain? It means we're broken. But there's redemption in it, and though we're still broken, oh, God can take all the suffering we have to go through, just like anybody in this world, but he can utilize it so that we can say all is okay. I'm amazed at how many Christian leaders and well-intentioned I know who are trying to protect God and trying to take the blame off God. God didn't have anything. He didn't know. He wasn't a part. It wasn't anything. And God is screaming out in Scripture, I could literally read you 50 passages. I've got them. Where it will say, and God brought calamity, and God did this, and God did that. It's part of his plan. He's executing it. That's going to be a little confusing. I know it's raising some questions. But let me at least make this clear. But is that really good? Is that fair? Is it right? Yes. Why? Because we are sinful people. And if we struggle with it, saying it shouldn't happen to us. Let me ask you this. Was it a part of God's plan that his own son would suffer? That his son would be brutally put to death? If you don't think it is, know that you're going against the Bible because in Isaiah, and this is one of many Old Testament, but Isaiah 53, 10, yet it was the will of God to crush him, referring to Jesus. New Testament, Acts two twenty three, referring to Jesus. Peter says, who was delivered up, that is to be crucified, by the predetermined plan of God. You can't get away from it. And God is saying, why are you protecting me? I'm screaming it as loud as I can to say, believe I'm in control of all this and you want me not to be because you don't think it should be happening. It happens because we're sinful people. But Jesus wasn't sinful, that's right. And he still suffered and died. And he did it because of our sin, not even his own. Why would we think we shouldn't suffer, have pain, hardship? Our very Savior did. And he didn't deserve it, and we do. So i got to make sure we're getting this right. So here's just kind of a little quiz. When Jesus was on the cross, and he's suffering and he's dying, was God in control, yes or no? Yes. Second question, when that happened, did God hate what was happening? Yes, he hated what was happening. But how about this question? When it did happen, can we say that he had decreed it, that which he hates, as Johnny Erickson Tata says, in order to accomplish what he loves? Yes. He hates to see his son die. He loves to see the redemption of his people. What if I get that tragic phone call and Carol gets it, and it's the the call that one of our children has died. What what happens is God in control when that happens? Yes, he's in control. Does God hate to see the pain and anguish that Carol and I are going to go through and all the family and uh, oh, he hates that. But does he decree what he hates to accomplish what he loves? Yes. What does he love? Well, James says Consider it, joy when you encounter trials, knowing the test of faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result. You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's changes in our own heart. There's glory to be revealed in heaven as we suffer in the sufferings of Christ even. And the list just goes on and on and on. All the things that come about in that we do suffer, but it's different. It's with a plan that God is saying for the well-being of his people. What happens If the light turns red and you're late, tell me, is God in control of that light? Yes. Does God hate that you got a red light? Probably not. (laughs) But the truth is God is in control of everything. You got to hang on to that. You got to believe it. When you get the red light, or whatever that represents, of the little things. When you get the phone call of death, cancer, whatever, representing the big things. Here's the question. Will you remember the throne room? Will you picture it and say, yes, he's on his throne? Will you have that pre-Easter glimpse and say, this can't be good, this is bad, all can't, no, God can't use it, God will not work it out, it is just bad, period. How will you look at it? Well, here's the thing. I wouldn't be fair to close there without saying this because the truth of it is got to have two things. you got to have belief and you got to have faith or trust. And those two have to go together. And I call that re- second relationship. you got to have beliefs. And some of us here, we're not buying this right now, but I'll tell you, life's going to be tough if you can't get there. You want to figure out how can I believe that God's in control? But you got to have more than just the belief. You got to have relationship. And that relationship, how do you get relationship? You get it like any relationship. You invite the relationship. If I want a relationship with Carol when I met her, Carol, would you like to go out? Would you like to spend time together? Would you like to talk? You know, just it's just time together. You invite it. And when you invite it, God says, sure, I'll spend time with you. And that's when you see his love and you go to the cross and you see his death and you go, wow, if you would die for me, what wouldn't you do for me? And the answer is nothing. And next thing you know, you fall in love. There's a relationship and the relationship feeds the belief and you start believing things you couldn't believe before. And belief, by the way, feeds the relationship. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So I'm going to make three recommendations as we leave here. One, I'd love for you as our guest to pick up a little book I've written called The Answer. And for you that don't like to read, don't shy away. It's only got 70 or so pages of print in it. It's easy reading. But it's the stuff that I have put out for people who say, I want to start taking a muscle that is weak called faith. And I want to build it up so I can believe and I want relationship. So you take that and you read it. You're going to find some helpful stuff there. I will promise you. It's yours for the taking. Just one per family, please. But pick one up and take it if you're a guest with us today. Number two, I'm going to suggest, I'm going to suggest that you, you start coming here for four weeks. I'm not saying make this your church. You may not like this place. You may not like me. But I tell you, you can be helped because you know what's going to happen? I don't know many places they are going to get this. You're going to get four weeks, but I'm going to lay out for you some stuff that you can take home with you that's going to have you understanding how to read Revelation and how to understand it. I'm going to give you tools that you won't imagine. I bet unlike any you've ever found. And this is going to be your guide to be able to figure out why would God be saying everything is all right? It's because of what he says in the book of Revelation you got to know the whole story. So I'd say come four weeks. That'd be it. That's fine. But I would say thirdly, if not here, you find a family, a church family. If I want to embrace the values of a family, I need to live in that family. If you see the values here you want, come, land in a family. Start off by just coming to Taste the Perimeter. Maybe not next week, maybe the next month, but just check it out. And if not here, maybe it's too big for you here. That's okay. There are great churches other places. But go find a family that helps you understand how to live life. And here's what I predict is going to happen. I predict that little muscle is going to grow. And there's going to become a relationship. And you're going to fall in love with him as you see the work on the cross. And you're going to see your faith begin to grow and your belief. And next thing you know, you say, oh, this is horrible. I hate it. But you know what? I do believe God's in control. And you know... I think he's got a plan. And if I could see behind the curtains of heaven right now, in the midst of all this ugly, I think I'd be saying, Yay, God, keep it up. Don't stop this pain and suffering. Now I understand. That's when you're at the place in life where you can say, Yes, everything is going to be all right. As we pray together, let's bow. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of this great story of Revelation. These chapters, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Father, for your power and what you've created in all this universe. Thank you, Lord Jesus, though, a person of the triune Godhead, as we know, even as the Father, that you have the same power, but you alone, as the person of Jesus, have paid the redemptive price of coming and dying. And for that reason, the church... Historic and worldwide to this day is applauding you and saying worthy is the lamb thank you father that you're not jealous you're excited to see us honor your son for doing what he's done thank you that on this day those many years ago there was a coronation day and you were taken into the heavenlies and at that moment from that moment on you're reigning supreme God let us buy in more and more grant it for your honor May we find people here coming to know you because of this. Over the weeks to come, may those that know you know you better. And may we honor you. Even now, Lord Jesus, I pray you'd hear the people that love you singing out to you of your worth as our lamb. And we pray this in the great name of that lamb. Amen.